Well, good morning to each and every one of you. Uh, that indeed was a wonderful song to remember that it's his wounds that have paid my ransom. One of the things that we've learned from the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For that is a marvelous truth, a marvelous song, how deep the Father's love for us. I'm going to ask that you would take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 15 is where we find ourselves this morning. And as I mentioned in the weekly newsletter that I know all of you read, uh, this month uh, we'll be wrapping up our time in the Gospel of Mark. It's been a blessed time for me. I don't know what it's been for you. Uh, right now, I don't really care. Uh, I've been blessed, and uh, the Lord has really uh, worked in my life uh, by giving me this opportunity to preach through this gospel. Uh, we read the text as part of our responsive reading, so let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love toward us. We're reminded of the words of the Apostle John who said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And Father, that truth is breathtaking. It's hard for us to fathom that we, whom you have saved, have made it possible for us to be a part of your family and that we are called your children. And Lord, there are so many other blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And so we have to marvel, we have to give thanks at your great love toward each of us. Thank you for the death of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was our substitute, that he paid for our sins, that we might have eternal life. And Father, as we come to the book of life, this wonderful book that is about the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would open up our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are in your word and that you would bring the necessary changes in our lives in light of your wonderful word. We commit ourselves to you and ask that Jesus Christ be glorified in our midst. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. An integral part of the death march of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem to be killed and to rise from the dead is the trials of Jesus. The trials of Jesus. In Mark, Mark presents the religious trial before the Jewish leaders, and he also presents the Roman trial. From Mark's perspective, there are only two trials. But when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the whole picture, we find out that there were six trials that the Lord Jesus Christ faced before he was crucified. Three of those trials were before Jewish leaders, and the other three trials were before Roman leaders. So the question is, why six trials? 
And the answer is they proclaim who Jesus Christ is. They proclaim his identity. When you look at these different trials, one of the things that you learn is what Mark has sought to establish from the very beginning of his book. When he wrote in chapter one, verse one, the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. These trials confirm for us who Jesus Christ actually is. But these trials also do something else. These trials let us know that Jesus Christ was innocent. In every trial, it proclaims his innocence. The accusations and many accusations that are made against the Lord are false. That there was no reason at all for Jesus Christ to be condemned to death, to die on Calvary's cross, to be crucified. And so the trials of Jesus Christ are important for the people of God. It's not just to be rushed through so we can get to the crucifixion. So today we examine the trial of Jesus before Pilate in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And we will see that this trial proclaims the identity of Jesus and that this trial also proclaims the innocence of Jesus. But there's something else that this trial proclaims. And in order for us to see that, we'll have to wait till we get to the end of this message. When it comes to the trial of Jesus before Pilate, please note that in verse 1, Jesus is led away and delivered to Pilate. Verse 1 serves as the setting for this trial before Pilate. The trial took place immediately after Jesus had the Jewish trial. It was immediately after Peter had denied the Lord three times on those different occasions. Immediately after that trial, where Jesus stood before the high priest, where he was accused of blasphemy because he said that he was the Christ, that he was the son of the blessed and highest one, immediately at that trial, Jesus Christ is faced with another trial. And you remember last Sunday, while that trial before the Jewish leaders was taking place, Peter was denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Downstairs in the courtyard, Peter was challenged with being identified as one who was with Jesus and being one of Jesus' disciples. Peter was given three different occasions, three different opportunities to identify with Christ. But on each occasion, he denied his Lord. And denial after denial after denial became worse and worse and worse for Peter. So that when it was all said and done, Peter heard the rooster crow and he began to weep, began to cry. Luke tells us that it wasn't just the fact that the rooster crowed, but that somehow, some way, 
Jesus and Peter made eye contact after Peter had denied his Lord three times. And that also brought tears to Peter. But immediately after those two events, this trial before Pilate takes place. The trial took place early in the morning. And I want to point out to us, this is the morning of Good Friday. Part of the Christian calendar, what we celebrate is the death of Christ on the cross. And when we think of Good Friday, well, this event takes place early in the morning of Good Friday. It's just going to be a matter of hours before our Lord is killed on the cross. It's probably around 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. In that culture, they're not like us. They don't wait until 9 or 10 to get up. Uh, They got up early and things got started. And so here, early in the morning, this trial takes place. And the trial took place after the chief priest held a consultation. The the key religious leaders in our passage this morning is not the high priest, but the chief priest, more than one. They are the ones driving it from the religious side. And the chief priest, before this trial takes place, they have a consultation. They have a council. There with the chief priests are the elders, are the scribes, so that basically the whole Sanhedrin, the whole council was there. And they gathered together and make a plan with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ. The trial took place after the binding of Jesus. They, they treated Jesus like he was a horrific criminal. So they bound him with chains as he was led to Pilate. They feared that somehow, some way, he could escape. And clearly, if he wanted to, he could. They could have put all the chains in the world around him and sought to bind him, but he could easily, if he wanted to, have broken those chains. Just like we saw in Mark chapter 5, that demonic man who was possessed with all those demons. They tried to bind him with chains. And the demons enabled that man to break the chains. But Mark wants us to realize as Jesus is getting ready to stand before Pilate, they treat him as a horrific criminal. One engulfed in chains. The trial also took place after they led Jesus away and handed him up to Pilate. So the religious trial is over. They have condemned him of blasphemy. They spat upon him. They mocked him. They laughed at him. And now our Lord is in chains and he's being led away by the chief priests who are controlling these officials that bring Jesus to Pilate. And they hand Jesus over to Pilate. 
And that's significant because the Lord has repeatedly predicted that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. And here we see that actually taking place. The Lord Jesus Christ is handed over to Pilate, a Gentile. And the trial begins. This is the setting of the trial. Now that Jesus has been led away and delivered into the hands of Pilate, we see in verses 2 through 5, Pilate's questioning of Jesus. And this begins the trial. There's two questions that Pilate will ask Jesus. The, the first question that he asks, are you the king of the Jews? He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets directly to the matter. Are you, Jesus, the king of the Jews? And more than likely, this was the accusation that was brought against Jesus by the Jewish leaders. He's proclaiming himself as the king of the Jews. Now, they might have put it a little bit differently. They might have said that he was the Christ, the king of Israel. But Pilate interprets their accusation to mean that Jesus is declaring that he's the king of the Jews. Now, those words never, ever came out of the mouth of Jesus. You can't read anywhere where Jesus says, I am the king of the Jews. It's implied, and it's even argued for in our text. And these are the words that will come out of Pilate's mouth over and over and over again. In fact, when they put Jesus to death, the inscription that will be placed by the cross is that he is the king of the Jews. A little bit later, when Jesus is mocked, when they make fun of him, when they put on a purple robe, the Roman soldiers will say, Hail, King of the Jews. This is an important phrase. And it's as if Pilate is looking at Jesus. You? Are you? the king of the Jews? And our Lord answers with two words. He says, you say. That's all he says to them. You say. And if you were to look at this account in the other gospel, each time that's the response of the Lord. You say. Pilate, you say. And our Lord, when he says those words, he's agreeing with Pilate that he is the king of the Jews, but also he's qualifying that. He, he wants Pilate to understand, I'm not a king in the sense that you think of. Uh, when you look at John chapter 18, uh, verse 36, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but not in the sense that Pilate thought, not in the sense that others thought, where he would set up his kingdom and his rule Enforce it upon all people. Yes, Jesus said, I am the king of the Jews. But I'm not a king in your understanding of that term. 
That was Jesus' response. You say. And immediately the chief priests, evidently they're there. They're listening to the question. The chief priests began to accuse Jesus. These religious leaders make many accusations against Jesus. It's not that they were harsh in their accusation. It was that there were many charges that they brought against the Lord. And in light of that, the Lord doesn't respond to any of those accusations, any of those charges. He doesn't feel compelled to say something. But Pilate feels compelled to say something. Pilate says, or asks a second question, and he follows that with an assertion. He says in verse 4, do you make no answer? Jesus, here you are being barraged with a series of accusations. The, the religious people of your day are charging you with many, many things. And do you say not a word? Do you say nothing? Do you act like you hear all these things or, or you really don't hear them and there's no need to respond? And Pilate goes on, see how many charges they bring against you. It wasn't just that they said he was king of the Jews. There were a series of charges. And really, it probably goes back all the way to the beginning of the, the Gospel of Mark when they got upset with Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath day. How Jesus ate and had, was at that conversion party with Levi, our Matthew's friends, and he was eating with sinners. All these different accusations they probably brought up. And our Lord didn't say a word. Not one word came out of his mouth. And Pilate cannot grasp this. He can't understand this. Do you not say anything? Do you not answer any of these accusations? And our Lord responds by saying nothing. He doesn't even acknowledge Pilate. Really what takes place, Mark tells us, is that Jesus made no further answer. Mums the word. Not going to respond to any more of these accusations. These people's hearts are hard. They're set in their thinking and their ways. Nothing I would say would change their hearts and their minds. And so Jesus kept silent. And Pilate looked at that response of Jesus, and he was amazed. He, he, he marveled. Uh, he probably had been at various trials throughout his lifetime as governor. No, he was a governor of Judea, set in there by the Romans. He had heard different trials. He had officiated different trials. 
But now here is Jesus. All these accusations being made. You have anything to say in your defense? He ignores him. He doesn't say anything at all. And that's the questioning of Jesus by Pilate. After questioning him, he was amazed, he was astonished, he marveled. And if you don't recognize that kind of response to Jesus, it's frequent in the Gospel of Mark. When people hear the words of Jesus, sometimes they are astounded and amazed. When they see the works of Jesus, they're astounded and amazed. But here, Pilate sees Jesus not uttering one word, and he's marveling. He's amazed. Pilate's questioning gives way to his quest to release Jesus. And this is in verses 6 through 11. He doesn't take the approach of questioning anymore. Now his approach is that he wants to get Jesus out of this situation. And that says something about Pilate. And when we look at his later actions, we're going to see something even worse about Pilate. But at least in verses 6 to 11, Pilate's on a quest. He's on a mission to try to get Jesus released. Now, in order for us to understand what's taking place, we need to see the background in verses 6 and 7. Pilate had established a custom that at the feast, that at the Passover, he would grant amnesty to one prisoner, whoever the Jewish people requested. That was his practice, his custom, that when the Passover took place, I will release to you one prisoner of your choice. There happened to be a prisoner that Mark mentions in verse 7, His name is Barabbas. We're all familiar with him. But I don't know if you really know what his name actually means. It's son of Abba. Now we cry out Abba, Father, that term of endearment. Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. He's in prison. The charge for his imprisonment is not given. You look at the other Gospels, we learn that he's a thief or a robber. And one Gospel writer says that he is a murderer. So this is not your typical prisoner who should be released because technically they haven't done anything wrong. This is a bad dude. This Barabbas, Uh, he's hanging out in prison with other bad dudes. They're they're mentioned as those who took part in the insurrection. So you have Barabbas, he's in prison, and along with others, they're in prison. And the reason why they were in prison, because they took part in the insurrection. I'm sure now the term insurrection is a little bit more meaningful to us since January the 6th. These were guys 
who pulled off January 6th way back in Jesus' day. They sought to overtake the capital of Jerusalem, so to speak. And in the process of doing that, they actually killed at least one person. So they were unsuccessful in their insurrection. They were put into prison. Barnabas is in, not Barnabas, but Barabbas is in prison with them. And he more than likely was a part of these rebels' insurrection. So here is this custom. Pilate releases one prisoner at the Passover. Here's a prisoner named Barabbas. Is he going to be the one released? When we read verse 8, it says that a multitude on their own initiative, came up, to, came up to Pilate. And they wanted Pilate to make sure he held true to his practice, to his custom. And what was that custom? To release one prisoner at the Passover. And, and Pilate uses this occasion to say, well, maybe I can get Jesus off the hook. Pilate is not convinced that Jesus is in the same bad shape and is guilty of the accusations and the crime that the Jewish leaders have brought against him. And so we see that in verse 9, that in response to this crowd, we don't know exactly who they are, but, but they're saying to Pilate, we want you to practice this procedure. We want you to make sure you release one of the prisoners. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So there are those words again. Pilate says to this crowd, do you want me to release for you? Do, do you want me to grant amnesty to Jesus, the, the king of the Jews? And the people are listening to Pilate. And unfortunately, the chief priests are also listening. Remember, they're the ones who had Jesus handed over to Pilate. They're the ones who have brought all these charges and accusations against Jesus. And now they turn their attention to the crowd. They hear what Pilate is saying, but they say to the crowd, and they speak to the crowd, and they incite the crowd. They want the crowd not to be asking for Jesus to be released. They want the crowd to ask that Barabbas be released. And so we read in verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So here is Pilate, the governor. Pontius Pilate. Jesus is standing trial before him. Jesus is trying to get 
Pilate is trying to get Jesus off the hook. But the chief priests don't want that to happen. So they move the crowd. They incite the crowd to ask Pilate, not for Jesus, but instead for Barabbas. They probably really don't understand what they're asking. We can kind of look back and appreciate a little bit more the fact that they asked that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. But just think if they had of asked for Jesus to be released. Just think if somehow, some way, Jesus was released. Then that would have meant there would be no salvation possible for this crowd, this multitude, who was saying that they wanted Barabbas released. That would mean that there'd be no hope, no salvation for the chief priest. There'd be no hope, no salvation for you and for me. So thank God that it was not Jesus that they were asking to be released. In the divine plan, it all worked out. But I still need to say how horrific it was for these religious leaders, how low they have sunk, that they are willing to have Barabbas released instead of Jesus Christ. They're willing for a criminal to be released instead of the Christ. They're willing for a murderer to be released rather than the one who gives life. Do you see the irony of that? That these religious leaders have stooped so low that now they're saying, we'll take anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they have stirred up the people so that the people will ask Pilate for the release of Barabbas. As we come to the end of our look at this text, the final verses reveal that Pilate was unsuccessful in his quest to release Jesus. He was not successful. And praise God that he wasn't successful. When we look at these remaining verses, we see that Jesus is scourged and then he's handed over or delivered to crucifixion. This is the end result of the trial. But the people, the crowd, the multitude, they're asking Pilate to release Barabbas. And Pilate responds to their request in verse number 12. He says, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? You want me to release Barabbas, this criminal, this murderer? So what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And he's hoping to provoke them into thinking that the foolishness of their requests. He's hoping that he can be rational with them. 
He's trying to get them to deliberate instead of acting on their emotion. What, what, what do you want me to do with this one who is called the king of the Jews? And shockingly, they answer, crucify him. That's the command. Pilate, put him to death. Kill him on a cross. This is the first time that Mark uses the verb crucify. First time in the gospel. But throughout the rest of the chapter, it will come up again and again and again. What do the people want? What do the crowd want with Jesus? Out of nowhere, they say we want him to be murdered. We want him to experience the worst kind of death a person could experience at that time. We want him to be crucified. And Pilate just didn't quite get it, didn't understand it. He's still trying to be reasonable with them. He's acting as if he's dealing with rational people who will come to a proper understanding of their actions. And so Pilate says to them, why? Why should I obey your command to kill him? What evil has he done? And Pilate is asking a very legitimate question. Why should Jesus be put to death and killed on a cross? Why should he be crucified? Earlier, I didn't mention it, but they basically had these chief priests who wanted them, wanted Jesus not to be released, but wanted Barabbas to be released. Why? Because they were envious of Jesus. But now, Pilate asked the question, why? What evil has he done? And the reality is, there is no evil that he has done. There is no crime that he is guilty of. None of the accusations are true. And the people heard the request of Pilate. Why should I kill him? Why should I sentence him to death by crucifixion? They heard Pilate say, what evil has he done? And it didn't touch them at all. It says at the end of verse 14, they shouted all the more, crucify him. Again, that's a command to Pilate. Kill him. Cause him to experience the worst kind of death that a human being could experience at the hands of Romans at that time. Kill him. Crucify him. 
you would think that Pilate would have had trouble obeying them. But he obeys the multitude. The multitude that said to him on two different occasions, crucify him, crucify him. We come to verse 15 and we read, Pilate release Barabbas. Can you believe that? That this governor, this one who was put in the position of making evaluations in trials, he, he knows that Jesus is not guilty. He knows that Jesus has done no evil at all. He knows that the whole reason that this is taking place is due to the envy of the chief priests. They were at enmity with Jesus. They were at odds with Jesus. And yet with all that Pilate knew, we read the shocking words, he released Barabbas. He released the wicked one. He released the murderer. He released the killer. And why did he do it? Because he was a people pleaser. He was a politician. He didn't want to lose any votes. Pilate released Barabbas because he wanted to satisfy the multitude. He wanted to please man instead of God. And so he has the audacity, he has the nerve to follow his custom, his practice of granting amnesty to a prisoner. But the one that he grants amnesty to is none other than Barabbas, the murderer, the thief. He gets let off of the hook. So Barabbas is released. Pardon is extended to him. But punishment is extended to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to the end of verse 15, it says that Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. Notice these two opposite actions. Barabbas is released. Jesus is delivered up to be crucified, to be killed. And that's the end of the trial where Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion. And the first step in that crucifixion, as we're told in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, is that Jesus was scourged. He was flawed. Pilate didn't do it himself. He entrusted that to some of his officials, his policemen. And what did they do? They stripped the Lord Jesus Christ, took his clothes off of him. They tied his hands together above his head, either to a pole or leaning onto a pole. And then they began to beat him. The whip was made out of leather that had 
stones and bones and metal pieces mixed into the leather. So that when Jesus was whipped, it tore out pieces of his flesh. By the time he dies on the cross, he is a bloody mess. This is not a beautiful picture. You might have a picture of Jesus on the cross and all there is is a crown of thorns on his head. But the Roman custom was you could whip a person as much as you wanted to. There was no limit like there was in the Jewish culture. We don't know how many times they beat our Lord Jesus Christ. These aren't love taps. But each time that he's whipped, pieces of flesh is torn out from his body. Sometimes we see movies dealing with slavery and seeing how the slave master beats and whips the, the slave. And we see all the scars and the bruises. The Romans were experts at crucifixion. They know how to cause someone to be put to death. Jesus has been sentenced to crucifixion. And the first step was that he was scourged. The next step is that they're going to mock him. And then they will kill him. The trial began with Jesus being delivered up to Pilate. It ends with Jesus being delivered up to crucifixion. Verse 1, they hand him over to Pilate. Verse 15, they hand Jesus over to crucifixion. This trial, like all of the six trials, proclaimed the identity of Jesus. It lets us know that Jesus is who he said that he was. It goes all the way back, as I said earlier, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in this trial, Jesus before Pilate, it is proclaimed that he is the King of the Jews. That's an interpretation that Jesus is the Christ. He's the King of Israel. But this trial also proclaims the innocence of Jesus. If there's anyone who knew that Jesus was innocent, it was Pilate. He understood that the only reason that Jesus stood before him was because of the envy of the chief priests of religious leaders. It was out of their hatred for him, for the Lord, that Jesus stood before Pilate. He understood that Jesus had done no evil that was worthy to be sentenced to death. If Jesus was innocent, then why did he die? If he was innocent, why did God allow him to die? This trial proclaims that the crucifixion 
of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, was a part of the sovereign plan of God. That's why he died. The, the issue is not whether he was innocent or guilty. He, he was innocent. But the reason why he was crucified is because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned it in eternity past. That the eternal Son of God would come into this world and live a perfect life and die on the cross. Be crucified. That's what the trial proclaims. He's going to be crucified. Not because he's done something wrong. He's going to be crucified. Because as Mark has told us in chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he's going to be crucified. The trial of Jesus lets us know that. That he died to provide salvation for you and for me. So if you're here today and you're wondering what these trials of Jesus are all about, why he stands before the high priest on one occasion and before Pilate on another occasion, is to proclaim to you and to me that it is the sovereign plan of God for Jesus to go to the cross and die on the cross to provide salvation for men and women, boys and girls, through the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the trial of Jesus before Pilate reminds us not only that Jesus is innocent, not only of his identity, but it reminds us that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ in order to provide salvation for you and for me. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that this trial proclaims his identity. This trial proclaims his innocence. But more importantly, Father, this trial proclaims that it's your sovereign plan and will for Jesus Christ to be crucified so that he might be our substitute, so that he might die in our place, so that he might pay the penalty for our sins, so that all of our sins, past, present, and future, can be forgiven by simply repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus the King of the Jews. Thank you for Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. May our lives reflect the fact that he came that we might have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.